Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. This Thursday, December 21st, it is the shortest day of the year. If you're having a bad week, that's good news. And uh, the other good news is that means that after today, the days start getting, the sunshine starts getting more abundant. The days are going to get a little longer. The nights are going to get a little shorter. So it's almost like today is kind of the last day before spring, right? I mean, come on. Come on, guys. Let's think. Let's think positive about this. Shortest day of the year, do something interesting to celebrate it. Uh, Rudy Giuliani is uh, not celebrating today. You may have read this morning he's filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, Yes, he did just get a $148 million judgment. Uh, That's how much money he owes uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss after defaming them and continuing to defame them. But that's not all. In paperwork that Rudy Giuliani filed this morning in New York, says he has $500 million in debts. Rudy Giuliani says he owes half a billion dollars. So there's the $148 million he owes to the former Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. He also listed on those forms unknown, unknown amounts of debt uh, due to uh, Smartmatic and Dominion voting systems. Um, They had listed Rudy Giuliani in their defamation suits. His assets, not... Inconsiderable. I mean, he says he's got $10 million in assets. But, um, yeah, if you've got $10 million bucks and you want to hang on to it, why on earth do you not change course? Not only did he defame Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, but he went right back out in front of the television cameras and in front of the microphones And he peddled the same lies that got him that judgment in the first place. So you know what? Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, they filed another defamation suit against him. As the judge said, they were perfectly within their rights to do. Because he defamed them, he was given a judgment, and then he used those same facts to defame them again. What happened to this guy? Good God, what happened to this guy? Inquiring minds want to know. They really do. You know, America's mayor, you know, after 9-11, he was, he may not have been the most beloved mayor in all of New York history, but after 9-11, here's a guy who really rose to the challenge. I mean, he was so impressive that at the time. People were talking about a possible presidential run. Can you imagine the Rudy Giuliani we know today? I mean, he almost makes Donald Trump look sane.
So Rudy Giuliani filing for bankruptcy. Has 10 million bucks, but he says he has $500 million in debt. You know, he's he's already being, I believe he's being sued by some of his previous lawyers because he never paid them. Rudy Giuliani, a very, very tragic fall for this guy. Uh, The Ed Burke trial, that jury is still deliberating. They are now in their third day. They deliberated all day Tuesday. They deliberated all day yesterday. They are deliberating today. The judge in the Ed Burke corruption trial said that... um, If they do not reach a verdict by the end of business tomorrow, he's going to simply adjourn the jury till after the holidays. He doesn't want them rushing to judgment. And frankly, if they did do that and it became known, which it most likely would, that would be cause for Ed Burke to um, appeal and start this whole process all over again. And isn't that what everybody wants? (sighs) So the Ed Burke jury is deliberating. Um, I don't know if he is at the courthouse now or uh, or what he is up to. But Ray Long, um, the guy who wrote the house that Madigan built, the other corruption trial that is currently on hold, uh, he's going to he's been covering the Ed Burke trial and he is uh, hopefully if the demands of the court don't keep him otherwise occupied, he is going to be joining us at two thirty today to give us his insights into what he has heard and seen in that particular case. Um, another thing I want to share with you now, a little bit earlier today, I was able to speak with a director, uh, the White House Director of National Drug Policy, a gentleman by the name of Rahul Gupta. The Biden administration today has, uh, has let it be known that they have a whole list of um, actions that they are taking to try to approach the opioid crisis, especially where it comes to fentanyl, in all respects. They want more money available. They want more people to go to treatment. They want more treatment options. They want more availability of Narcan. And apparently, a lot of the fentanyl that other illegal substances were being, the fentanyl that they were being cut with to, of course, make more profit and make it, of course, more dangerous, That was coming from China, and the administration got an agreement from China that they would clamp down on these illegal exporters of fentanyl, which they did. Um, But with most criminals, there's always a workaround, and that was the case with these criminals as well. Instead of exporting actual fentanyl, they started exporting the ingredients that make fentanyl. So they could still continue to keep their profits up. Those uh, ingredients were oftentimes sent to Mexico where labs would make the fentanyl, which would then make its way to the United States. So there are the Biden administration is taking steps on enforcement, on funding, on treatment, on the available 
availability of Narcan. And today I was able to speak directly with the White House National Drug Policy Director, Rahul Gupta, and talk about everything that's happening right now. So listen to this. I'm joined by Rahul Gupta, who's the director of the White House Office of National Drug Policy. And we come together today to talk about fentanyl, particularly the illicit trade in international trade in fentanyl and some actions the White House is about to take. Rahul, if we could uh, back up a little bit and explain to my audience what fentanyl is. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joan. Uh, fentanyl is this really lethal and dangerous opioid drug that is 50 to 100 times more potent uh, than morphine. Uh, so small doses as much as on the tip of the pencil could be potentially lethal when ingested. Um, and, and, and that's what makes it dangerous, but it's a synthetic drug. And how does... Um, the use of fentanyl make illicit, illicit drug use much more deadly? Yeah, so, you know, fentanyl is a drug that has been used in medical realm for a long time as a sedative or something that you use in operation rooms. But what we're talking about is the illicit production of fentanyl. We're talking about the, the when it's produced by drug trafficking organizations they figured out to produce this as powder forms and they can press it into pills. They can turn it into an IV form as well or, or uh, turn the powder into a way you can inject it. The idea here is to get people used to it so they can uh, you know, end up having a substance use disorder or addiction to it. So they would want to use it more and more to the point that they may ingest higher doses at some point and die because their breathing stops and, um, you know, that just becomes one of those overdose situations for so, so many Americans. And do I understand it correctly that basically it's pretty cheap to produce fentanyl? So a lot of times other drugs that people might think that they are buying for illicit recreational use are cut with fentanyl to increase the bulk. And so people end up actually buying something that's far more powerful than they thought. Yeah, so really, you know, what I've been focused on for quite a bit of time is to understand the commerce, because this is all about making money for, for the bad guys. And what happens basically, they've always been trafficking in drugs like heroin and uh, cocaine and, and meth. What they've realized is that we can make much more money if we take this cheaply produced drug and add it and small doses will have to use much less of the doses of the original drug um, and, and, and make more money. So at the end of the day, this is about commerce, illegitimate and illicit commerce, but still about making money off the vulnerabilities of innocent Americans. Director Gupta, I was really surprised when I read some of the materials before our interview. I was surprised that a lot of the illicit fentanyl is coming from overseas. Talk about that. Yeah, so uh, this has shifted a little bit. So I'll talk a little about the history. So it used to be when a lot of this illicit fentanyl was coming directly from China. And uh, in 2019, there was an agreement where China said, we'll stop shipping it, uh, illicit one part. But what then happened was all of these chemical companies in China started to ship the precursor chemicals to make fentanyl in, indirectly or directly to Mexico where then it was being produced and is being produced into fentanyl and then traffic across our southwest border mostly. 
into our communities. And so we've been working to not only develop the supply chain, understand it better, but to start to, uh, you know, put pressures on each choke point in order to suffocate the entire supply chain. So what does the Biden administration plan to do that hasn't been done before? Well, first of all, just last month, President Biden had a, you know, a quite a bit of long meeting with President Xi in San Francisco. And one of those agreements, there were few to have, but one of those agreements was to resume counter narcotics cooperation with China. Uh, we are continuing to work with China to make sure that holding their illicit industry accountable in their nation. Secondly, we've been working with our partners and allies in Mexico and India and Colombia and other places to make sure that others don't pop up and those that are producing fentanyl are being held accountable. On top of that, it's really important to then help people as well. So the Biden administration has now put in 42% more funding than the entire previous administration in helping people get treatment access. But also just last year, we put out 9 million doses of Narcan or Naloxone, which is an antidote for fentanyl overdose uh, through our states and communities, which has resulted in saving at least 500,000 American lives. And we're expanding the uh, infrastructure and and the resources to get people the help when they are suffering from addiction, which is a disease, uh, when and where they need that help. I know that um, I've been reading a lot about um, Narcan availability. You know, there's been talk about making sure all paramedics have it in the truck. There's been talk. Actually, I even heard talk about a, a vending machine like a, you don't have to put any money in, but vending machines. And I know that here in Chicago, you know, we host Lollapalooza every every summer. And uh, our former director of Chicago Public Health, Allison Arwadi, had people there on site carrying Narcan and they were giving it to people. You know, if you if you just take it, you know, if you see somebody having an overdose, use it. Uh, is is that a big part of, of this push, making Narcan more available? Yes. Let me first say that you have some of the, you know, national great leaders in Chicago. Allison's one of them. Nick Brody and Haida is another one of them. And, and a lot of the leaders are actually pushing this idea of making sure that life-saving medication is available, just like we would do for uh, automatic defibrillators or fire extinguishers. This is a life-saving medication. I remember days when this was stigmatized. It is no longer is. In fact, the Biden-Harris administration made this available even over the counter now. Uh, so right, sitting right next to Motrin and Tylenol. The reason this is important is when you have 110,000 Americans dead, majority of them from fentanyl, you've got to make this drug available in schools, in malls, in Lollapalooza's uh, festivals, and anywhere and everywhere you can, because this is about saving lives first and foremost. And then help people move towards getting the treatment and get into recovery, which is more than just treatment. It's about housing. It's about transportation and job and economic and educational opportunities. Dr. Gupta, again, looking through some of the materials, you know, there are actions having to do with treatment, having to do with funding, having to do with enforcement, a longer list than we can get to right here, right now. So what would you say is the most important thing for my listeners to take away from this interview? Look, from day one, the president made this a part of his unity agenda for the nation. What that means is 
because this problem is so prevalent, it doesn't care about who you are, where you look, live, and what you look like, and how much money you make. He's made this a part of one of those few things in Washington that whether you're Republican, Democrat, whomever, independent, we can all come together to solve it. And we need to be doing that same thing across our communities across this country because this is a problem that none of us can solve independently, but all of us can come together to help uh, solve it. Next year, we're going to be focused on getting naloxone out there more in the communities, making sure that we have treatment available. We're going after the money angle of those who, uh, you know, plan to do ill will to unsuspecting Americans. And I think we can get there. I think there's a lot of hope. At the same time, it's a very complex and deadly problem that we face. It takes a village, doesn't it? Absolutely does. Uh, Director Gupta, thank you so much for spending uh, part of your day with us. We here in the Chicago area really appreciate you. Thank you very much, Joan. Appreciate you. Happy holidays. You too. That's uh, White House Director of uh, National Drug Policy, Rahul Gupta. And uh, we will be back with more after this. Tom Hartman. In the 42 years since the start of the Reagan revolution, bought off politicians have so altered our tax code that $51 trillion has left the pockets, the homes, the bank accounts, and the retirement accounts of working-class Americans and ended up in the money bins of the morbidly rich. The Tom Hartman Radio Program, weekdays 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on WCPT 820, where facts matter. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Oh, there's a lot of talk today about that very surprising ruling by the Colorado State Supreme Court, where they found that uh, Donald Trump should not have a place on the Republican primary ballot because he caused an insurrection. He is uh, involved in uh, the insurrection that took place on January 6th. And according to, they say, the 14th Amendment, an insurrectionist cannot be running for president. So uh, that is going to be interesting. It is going to end up, of course, eventually before the Supreme Court. But... As you might imagine, the cable networks, particularly um, CNN, um, have been talking to a number of legal experts to try to get a feel as to what exactly the state Supreme Court did in Colorado, how they wrote it up, and whether or not it will stand. Again, you know, they said Donald Trump ain't going to be on that primary ballot. Jake Tapper um, interviewed Bill Barr. Uh, Bill Barr, who has become a critic of Donald Trump since he has uh, left his role enabling Donald Trump and uh, who is trying to apparently uh, position himself as some kind of statesman. We're just supposed to forget that he enabled all of Trump's worst impulses. Um, but he spoke, he told Jake Tapper that he did not think that the Colorado State Support Supreme Court ruling barring Trump from the ballot was going to, 
was a good decision or that it was going to sustain. Listen to Bill Barr talking to Jake Tepper. What's your reaction? Uh, Jake, thanks for uh, having me on uh, this evening. It's always a pleasure. Uh, The Colorado Supreme Court's decision yesterday was uh, a judicial masterpiece of of, uh, constitutional interpretation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, The the opinion and and, and the decision uh, are uh, unassailable uh, and irrefutable. Uh, I did not have the opportunity uh, to see uh, the former attorney general on your show earlier. Uh, based on that segment what I, that I just heard, uh, the, the former attorney general is uh, uh, categorically incorrect uh, to, to the extent that he was commenting on uh, the uh, legal sufficiency of the, of the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. Uh, it was in every single respect, not only under state law, but more importantly, under the federal constitutional law, uh, an impeccable decision, as I said, irrefutable. That was conservative federal judge Michael Ludig, who was responding to the Bill Barr sound that we didn't get to, which basically Bill Barr told Jake Tapper, it's a bad decision. Like the, the, it'll never stand. They, uh, they just didn't do a good job here. And yet this Michael Ludig, who is also a CNN contributor, he was a conservative. He's not a Democratic judge. He's a conservative judge. He was on the federal bench and he thinks the decision as it is written is a masterpiece. Uh, as he put it, he thinks Bill Barr is completely wrong. Also got some breaking news here from uh, Jason Meissner. Um, Ed Burke has been found guilty. The uh, the jury has reached a verdict. I uh, I don't know whether or not Ray Long will be available in the next couple of minutes. We're hoping to talk to him. He's been covering this for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, but Jason Meissner, who's also been covering, said, Posted former Chicago alderman Ed Burke found guilty of racketeering conspiracy charge alleging he used the power of his elected office to squeeze developers for private law business. Um, we're going to take a break. Uh, we may or may not have Ray Long to talk to about this when we come right back. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Well, we had scheduled an interview with uh, Ray Long for right now, uh, hoping that maybe by yesterday there would have been a verdict. But (laughs) wouldn't you know it, uh, a verdict literally just came down moments ago in the Ed Burke trial. And uh, Ray is, of course, scrambling. He and Megan Cropot and Jason Meissner have been reporting this story for the Chicago Tribune. Here is what we know right now, what uh, they are. They've already published on the digital site. Uh, He was convicted of racketeering conspiracy. Uh, The charges against him were that he used his position as an alderman to get business for his law firm from developers who wanted things done with the city. 
Uh, it says uh, the guilty verdict uh, kept a stunning fall for Burke, the former head of the city finance committee and Democratic political machine master who served 54 years in the city council before he stepped down last May. There were 23 hours of deliberations over four days. There was a 19-count indictment, which even as Jason and Ray and Megan posted this, the uh, indictment was still being read in the courtroom. U.S. District Judge Virginia Kendall oversaw this trial. She had told the jury that there was no rush to judgment, that if... um, They felt they needed more time. They should take all the time they needed. If they couldn't decide by Friday, she was going to make sure that they had the holidays off. But um, they have come back with a guilty verdict. Jury verdict is what I was trying to say in one word. Burke was also charged with a form of federal bribery, attempted extortion, Conspiracy to commit extortion and using interstate commerce to facilitate an unlawful activity. The racketeering charge alone, that charge alone carries a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Ed Burke. Next, um, let's see, a little in about a week from today. Ed Burke turns 80. So regardless of any other punishments, (laughs) on the racketeering charge alone, he could be potentially in prison for the rest of his life. We um, We will find out exactly what the... um, What the jury said um, as this story develops, again, this news came down literally just a few minutes ago. Ed Burke joined by his wife, the uh, former chief of the Illinois Supreme Court. Every day of the trial, they sat side by side. We are going to bring you more information on this. as it becomes available. Big, big news. Now, the other big corruption trial, you know, the trial of Mike Madigan and the um, sentencing of the ComEd 4, those are on hold right now. The Supreme Court is hearing a case that could affect both the Madigan trial and whatever punishment the ComEd 4 gets. The Supreme Court is considering a case about how some of these corruption laws need to be defined. It's it's complicated. It's legal. But those cases are on hold right now until the Supreme Court rules one way or the other. Potentially, I mean, I have to believe this is a long shot. But potentially, if the Supreme Court goes with a very narrow or different definition than prosecutors have been working on, it is a long shot, but it is within the realm of possibility. 
that the charges against Mike Madigan could go away because of the statutes used to bring him uh, to his corruption trial. Uh, You know, don't you kind of wish we in the state of Illinois would get people in office who don't end up going to jail? One of the things that potentially could help in that is term limits. Most of the people who end up going off the rails, they're in power for a long time. Like Ed Burke, Mike Madigan. Mike Madigan, when he started off, did some amazing things for Democrats. Just amazing things for Democrats. But over time, that kind of power, it's hard to keep yourself reined in. It's hard when you have all this power over people not to use it and not always using it for the best. The lines can become hard to see after a while where the line is. The argument against term limits, though, is that, you know, the longer people are in a certain office, the more expertise they have. They know how everything works. They know how to get things done. They have, quote unquote, institutional knowledge. It may be time here in the state of Illinois to sacrifice a little bit of institutional knowledge for term limits so that people aren't in their jobs for decades and can't accrue the kind of influence and power that leads to corruption. More often than not, it seems like in the state of Illinois, there is um, other news of this day that I didn't get to at the top of the hour. Um, We're going to take a break and we're going to shift back to that right after this. Take Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive, with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Um, uh, there is uh, a lot of news to get to today. I do want to revisit the uh, Colorado State Supreme Court decision to uh, say that Donald Trump, because of the 14th Amendment, has no place on the Colorado presidential primary ballot a decision that's generating huge amount of writing and huge amounts of discussion. Uh, George Conway was on um, Morning Joe, the Joe Scarborough, Mika Brzezinski, uh, MSNBC program. He was on with them yesterday. And uh, like everybody, he was talking about the Colorado decision. George Conway... Remember, I don't know if they ever officially got divorced. He was married to Kelly Conway. Supposedly, their story is that George Conway, who is a, used to be a conservative, actually introduced his wife to Donald Trump. Then his wife 
went to work for Donald Trump. She was the one she I don't know whether or not she coined it, but she was the first to use the phrase alternative facts and became a shameless shill for Trump. Uh, There was an announcement a while back that they were getting divorced. I'm not sure if they ever followed through with it, but that is the context of where George Conway um, sort of fits into all this. Like I said, yesterday he was on Morning Joe. He was talking about the Colorado decision, and I think what he had to say is pretty interesting. Listen to this. As a good uh, longtime member of the Federal Society, you have to look at the text of the, of, the, of the constitutional provision. And the constitutional provision says nothing about convictions. It, they could have easily, when they wrote that provision, said someone convicted of insurrection cannot be held, cannot, be, cannot hold public office. Mm-hmm. It does not say that. And so what that means is the courts are free to determine on their own, you know, based upon, you know, le- valid judicial processes, um, what is an insurrection? and whether the facts meet that. And what happened here was there was a five-day trial where Donald Trump got, and his lawyers got to participate, and the judge made extensive findings. A judge that actually kind of ruled for him on a bogus ground found that he engaged in insurrection, found this by not just a preponderance of the evidence, which is your lower, your lower basic civil court standard, but by clear and convincing evidence, which means that it's way more than, you know, more likely than not. It's very very, very strong evidence, and you don't see the dissents challenging those findings at all. And in fact, there's no basis to challenge the findings. When you go to the majority opinion and you read uh, the, the 30 or 40 pages, or, or I don't know how many there are, on, on, on what happened on January 6th and what Donald Trump did before and during January 6th, there's no dispute. I mean, we saw it on television, and we saw it. We, we know what happened. He fomented, he engaged in an insurrection. He wanted this to happen. And not only that, I mean, he, you know, he gave, there's another provision in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that talks about giving aid and comfort um, to enemies of the Constitution. Well, he did that. He was an enemy of the Constitution. So it's really, if this case, if this decision gets overturned, it's not going to be on the basis of, 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 of the factual findings. That was George Conway uh, talking about the decision in Colorado. Also on Morning Joe yesterday was a man whose name you may be familiar with. Um, His name is David Frum, and he writes or has written um, on in the Atlantic an article about the Colorado Supreme Court. The article is titled The Colorado Supreme Court Just Gave Republicans a Chance to save themselves, they should take it. Um, you may have heard that after the Colorado Supreme Court said uh, Donald Trump had no business being on the ballot, that the other Republican presidential nominees who could have stood up and said, gosh, this is another reason why I should be president and he shouldn't. They did not do that. Are you shocked? Because they've displayed such incredible courage up to this point? (laughs) No. um, The Republican presidential nominees said basically to the effect, well, gosh darn it, if they won't let him on the ballot, I don't want to be on the ballot either. 
Yeah. They have been just like when Democrats handed Republicans in the Senate the second impeachment. They had in supposedly behind the scenes. Mitch McConnell was saying to them that Donald Trump was a cancer and the Democrats had handed the Republican Senate on a silver platter an opportunity to cut the cancer out of the Republican Party. But they were afraid. And apparently, so are the Republican nominees right now. Trump is the elephant in the room. And um, even when they're handed an opportunity to weaken him, to lessen him, to set themselves apart from him, they do not take it. Like I said, this is David Frum wrote this article about the Supreme Court ruling and how it could potentially be seen as a gift to the current people who are challenging Donald Trump. Um, listen to what he had to say on Morning Joe. These Republican candidates are all willing to fight for the silver medal. They're all willing to fight each other, but they will not stand up to Donald Trump. They're too scared to fight, and therefore they are too weak to win. The reason their words matter now, I mean, I think probably what's going through Nikki Haley's head is she's hoping the Supreme Court will deliver for her, but she doesn't want to be the person to say so. The the, the problem they have is the Supreme Court is looking to these candidates for signals about what Republicans expect. If uh, Nikki Haley is trying to be artfully insincere, and maybe Ron DeSantis the same, and to say, you know, please save, you know, please don't do this. I beg you not to do this while thinking, please do this, please do this, please do this. But that's too complicated. The courts need to hear from Republicans. Uh, we respect your authority. If you do this, you will be supported. And that will give the Supreme Court the permission it needs from its fellow Republicans, it's a very political court, to act in a way to save the Republican Party from itself. As I keep stressing, had this case ha- come up in the summer, we would be talking about Biden as the beneficiary. But in coming up as it does at the end of 2023, the beneficiaries here are Trump's fellow and better Republicans. That's correct. So <clears throat> we wait. Um, you know, between this particular case and the Jack Smith request of the Supreme Court, you know, in the Washington, D.C., January 6th insurrection case. And I I explain that only because of, you know, Donald Trump is still facing so many uh, different cases in so many different courtrooms that you really do have to set them apart. In Washington, D.C., there is a Judge Chuckton who is hearing the case that uh, Jack Smith and his prosecutors are bringing against Donald Trump for the events of January 6th. Donald Trump has said that he has presidential immunity, that nothing he did, well, what he'd like the people to believe is that nothing he did while president or after being president is uh, anything that he can be gone after for, but at the very least, anything that happened under his watch Jack Smith decided to um, not wait around for all of the different appeals and all of the different courts. He knew, he does know that that will drag the January 6th case on, and he really wants to go to trial this spring. This spring. He wants to get this case done before the American people vote. So Jack Smith decided to take 
this all the way to the Supreme Court right now and not wait for all the different courts to rule and all the different appeals to be filed and all the different briefs and all the different delays and all the different dates. Donald Trump, of course, uh, his lawyers filed a brief saying, oh, Supreme Court, we don't really want you to look at this. No, let let the process work out. In other words, let me take this to the all the courts in the middle before it gets to you. He and his lawyers know that's where it's going to end up because the lower courts are going to rule for Jack Smith. So he's going to appeal and they're going to rule for Jack Smith and then he's going to appeal. And he wants that. He wants to drag it out. He's famous for that. He's famous for um, knowing every trick in the book to delay a legal proceeding, to delay civil proceedings as well. And what he tries to do is run the people, especially in civil cases, the people who are after him, to run them out of time and money and patience. And in, in using that tactic time and time again, like people he owes money, he's gotten them to agree to settlements that are literally pennies on the dollar because they just want to have it done. They just want to have it be over with. He's a master at manipulating the legal system. And Jack Smith is trying to circumvent that. Donald Smith or Donald Donald Trump doesn't want him to do that. So we'll see how the Supreme Court rules on that. But with the ruling that Jack Smith is asking for and with the ruling they are now going to have to make, assuming that they hear uh, what has happened in Colorado and someone brings it before them, which is highly likely. The Supreme Court that we have, the Supreme Court that has sadly become famous for its lack of ethical values and its corruption, the Supreme Court where three of the seats were filled by Donald Trump with the most conservative, well, like he found them. He didn't find anybody. He doesn't know any judges. (sighs) Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society said, here, this person, this person. And he was like, okay, whatever, you know, whatever it takes. Got to keep those donors happy. So this Supreme Court that is ethically and morally challenged and stacked with Donald Trump judges is going to play a heavy, heavy role in the 2024 election. And that does not make me feel good. They're going to be deciding the Jack Smith thing. They're probably going to be deciding what happens in Colorado and God knows what else. And you might think, oh, you know, they recently, quote unquote, adopted a code of ethics that has absolutely no teeth and there are no consequences. It is literally a piece of paper and nothing more. This is the Supreme Court that's going to have its thumb on the scale in 2024. This is why it is more important than ever That we not have a situation like we had with Bush and Gore in Florida. Ralph Nader to this day is somebody that I will never forgive for Florida. And and that's why I'm so worried about no labels 
and the the small but seemingly growing following of RFK Jr. by people who only know his name and they think he's the same as his dad and he is not. He couldn't be more different. I'm I'm and add to that mix the electoral college and the Supreme Court decisions and kids. We've got to make sure in each and every state that there isn't simply a Biden victory, but there's got to be a Biden landslide. There have to be enough votes for Joe Biden that there is simply no way the election can be contested. Because if there is a contested election that ends up in front of this Supreme Court, you can kiss your democracy goodbye. And I wish that I could say to you that that was that that was an exaggeration or it was hyperbole or it was worst case scenario. I don't think it's worst case scenario. I mean, it would be worst for the country, but I think it is a fairly reasonably likely scenario. Don't do what many people did when Hillary Clinton was running against Donald Trump. Everybody was so sure that the country would never elect a clown like Trump that they were like, well, you know, I don't really like Hillary. I don't really like her. So I'm going to do a protest vote or I'm not going to vote at all. or I'm going to vote for Jill Stein because, you know, I just want to send a message. 2024, there will be no messages sent. We can afford to mess around with this election. Too much is at stake. This isn't just somebody we don't like very much potentially becoming president. This is somebody who has told us repeatedly that he is going to do everything in his power to destroy democracy. He has told us who he is. He's going to gut Government, he's going to use the Department of Justice as his personal retribution and revenge machine. He wants uh, to make sure his DOJ charges NBC and MSNBC with treason. Please, oh, please, oh, please take this election as seriously as it does as it deserves to be taken. No protest votes, no ignorant votes, no staying home because uh, you just don't feel like getting off the couch. No. I um, was reading a book about nations that succumb to tyranny. And there was an anecdote of a, of a woman who, you know, whose life was going along fine. You know, she voted. She wasn't paying much attention to government. And in the book, she says, one day she looked out her front window and there were tanks in the street. And she thought to herself, how did it come to this? How did we get here? We don't get there overnight. We don't get there quickly. We get there with little dribs and drabs 
we get there with a thousand cuts, a thousand times when we say that it's just not that important or we just don't feel like it or it doesn't really matter until it does. We are going to take a break. We are going to be joined by the lovely and talented uh, Sunday family meeting co-host Richard Chu. He and Eric Grant hold down the family meeting here on WCPT every Sunday. You should be listening to them. Uh, Richard Chu is going to be here right after we break for news. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. I am very pleased to be joined by one of our regular guests and uh, sometimes actually fill-in host. Richard Chu is here. Richard is, of course, joined with Eric Grant. I think they are joined at the hip uh, pretty much every Sunday (laughs) here on WCPT from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. for the family meeting. Uh, Richard, how are you? Hey, Joan, I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully well. Uh, how uh, how are your holidays looking so far? They're looking great, um, as, as always. I, we kind of take a, a very easy approach to the holidays and try to keep them as low stress as possible because, as you well know, they can be highly stressed, and, um, you know, that's not the, that's not the goal or that's not the picture of what we like to have the holidays be. So it's all going great. It's going great. I have, um, a recording of a, a Canadian brass group. They call, they call themselves the Empire Brass. And they recorded yeah. a wonderful collection of holiday music that I, I've had it. I've had it so long that it actually went out of print for a while. For about five years, you couldn't buy it. And then must have been more people like me. And I think you can get it again. Of course, now that you download everything, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I even said CD. I'm really dating myself there. Um, That's all right. I'm sure you can download it. Um, But I try to play one of their songs every day because it's so easy as you well know, Richard, you get so involved, you get so involved in work and everything else that's going on in your life that it's sometimes you you forget that this is this is a time of year that's special and it's going to be gone so soon. And we're going to I'm, I sometimes I look back and I go, gosh, why didn't I enjoy that more? So every day yeah. I am trying to play a little Empire Brass Joy to the World to remind me not only that I still have tasks to do before the holidays, but that I'm supposed to enjoy the holidays. Good that's God. right. That's right. You know, I'm, and I'm glad you're doing that and I'm glad you're admitting that you're doing it because here's what I'll tell you. Um, I, I, I kind of follow the same thought, thought process as you do when it comes to that um, in terms of things being joy filled and full of love and fun. 
And the thing that I'll say, Joan, and this is uh, kind of a, um, a multiplication of thoughts that one of my aunts, and you may have heard me say this before, either on the, on the radio with you or personally, um, my aunt Lillian said this to me when I was 15 years old about Mother's Day. I remember it like it was yesterday. She said, um, as I was scurrying around the house, um, wanting to get some things for my mother for Mother's Day, and she said to me, give your loved ones their flower, their roses. She specifically said their roses every day. Don't wait for a special occasion. And so I, I've in the last probably 10 years, certainly if, if not longer, I've really, really leaned into that when it, throughout the course of the year, but certainly when it comes to the, the end of the year holidays. And I, I really work hard to make sure that I'm giving the folks that I care about and that I know, and you, you can, you can call me on this because you know, me is to give that love and that, that, that joy to folks throughout the course of the year. Um, because it's not just the end of the year that we should be doing that. And, and and I can, I can tell you this in the last two weeks, I've had a cousin's daughter pass away. I've had another family member pass away. I've got, and, and so you know, uh, folks passing away during the holidays is even more challenging. So I think that what we all have to do, and you know me, Joan, I take the optimistic, as tough as I can be on things, I take the optimistic approach as much as I can. And so what keeps me full during the course of every year is just giving, you know, the folks that I love and care about personally, professionally, and all the rest, their flowers as much as I can during the course of the year so that it's not something that I have to weld myself up to during the holidays. And then what happens, Joan, crazily enough, is that then the holidays become even more filled with joy and fun because it is, it, it, we all are, you know, built the same way that culmination of the end of the year seems to mean even more when I do a, a good job of, keeping those spirits high during the course of the year. And it's, it's a, it's a lofty goal. I'll be the first to tell you that, but it's one that keeps me on my toes throughout the course of the year. Well, you know, um, when you lived a little bit of life as, um, as you have, and I have, you realize, you know, that things can change. Your life can change radically in the space of 24 hours. And every time something like that happens, even if it's not happening to you personally, but maybe to somebody you love, you it it just makes you realize that nobody I mean, we hear it all the time. Nobody's guaranteed, you know, a tomorrow. And I agree with you when you make an effort on a daily basis to really appreciate the people you love, then the holidays it's, it doesn't have to be the cake, but it can be the icing. It can be even sweeter um, that, yep. you know, you, you you don't feel like you're having to make up for lost time or, oh, gosh, you know, I haven't uh, paid any attention to, you know, Aunt Jane for the last four months. It's the holidays. <laughs> I better reach out. But, you know, if you if you do stuff like that on a on a regular basis, it just it is so important because. You know, if you're a young person listening to this and you don't know what Richard and I are talking about it, talking about here, life is going to occasionally just smack you in the face. 
You are not going to yep. see it coming. You are not going to be prepared for it. Um, and what the really bad part, and I was, t- I'm, you know, Jackie Bang and I are really good friends, and we've both right. had our share of ups and downs, and we've both agreed that when the down things come, it's never just one. It seems like all of a sudden, you know, you're getting a hit from the left and you're getting a hit from the right, and somebody's kicking you from behind, and it's like, oh my god. So um, I know. Hey, well, so so Jackie, I don't know if you're listening or not, but hey, girl. <laughs> I haven't seen you in a while, and I hope you hope you're doing well. And if not, Joan, please pass that on to her. But you know, my sister, my older sister, Linda, says this to me for years, years, years. Um, and and we we get you and I get to say this because we love our listeners. We're thankful for our listeners. Every time I have the opportunity to sit in for you, and certainly during the family meeting or on Santita's show. The one thing that I really want to articulate to everybody that listens is we appreciate you. We may not say it every single show. I think we try, but we definitely appreciate our listeners, our viewers, our followers, our texters, our emailers, because we rep, we recognize, Joan and I will tell you, we recognize exactly what she just said, that crazy stuff happens. It can come out of nowhere, and as prepared as you try to be, um, it can hit you, and, and it can be a storm. And the the thing, you know, the, the wisdom that I've gotten from living and my one of my oldest, my oldest sister is that when you're a val- in, when you're in the valley of craziness, pay attention because there's so much to learn. And, you know, because when you're up top, you don't pay attention all the time, you know, but when you're in the valley, that's the time to pay attention. So from Joan and Richard, we will say to you guys our probably our holiday gift is that we love you guys and we're thankful that we have the listeners and the followers and the viewers and the texters and emailers that we do. We just hope that we're giving you guys some substantive stuff um, so that you continue to listen to us and um, that we can provide you with what you need um, as part of the WCPT extended family. Richard Chu, Mr. Glass, half full, if not three quarters full of Something that something that this show could use a little more of, because, Richard, I got to tell you, a lot of times I'm just cranky. Um, I have lots of questions I want to ask Richard. We're going to get to them right after this break. The Devil's Advocate. Former President Donald Trump made sexual comments about his daughter, Ivanka, that were so lewd he was rebuked by his chief of staff. Former Trump official Miles Taylor writes in a new book. Damn, Don, that's your daughter, man. You can't talk like that. What's wrong with you? Did I say that aloud? I was just thinking it in my head, and it must come out. Saw Creeper. The Devil's Advocates, weeknights at 7 on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Alexa, play WCPT. WCPT from TuneIn. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Richard Chu. You can hear him every Sunday with Eric Grant for two hours on the family meeting here on WCPT from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Richard, I'm really curious because I know that on most of uh, our shows, people have already started calling in and weighing in on the upcoming presidential election. What are your callers saying to you? Who are they supporting? What are their uh, hopes and what are their complaints? Well, and again, thanks, Joan, for having me on. Um, the The big thing that I'm hearing, and it, 
I'm sure you're hearing this in part. Um, most people are leaning into we have to vote for the Biden-Harris ticket. There is no alternative. Mm-hmm. Those of us that are those that are progressive, liberal Democrats. Okay. Last uh, when I, when I sat in for you last week, one of the things that a uh, week before last, I'm sorry, that was really really you know right on out of my mouth was we don't have any choices. The choice to vote for a third party candidate or even give them a look or even take away, take your eye off the ball, which is not only to support President Biden and his administration and that ticket of Biden Harris again, but to also, this is critically important, to make sure that if you, just to say, those are people who listen and follow us are in, a, in the Chicago metropolitan area, Illinois, or let's just say a blue state. If you're in a blue state, your responsibility, in addition to voting for the Biden-Harris ticket, is to find a red state House of Representative race and a red state Senate race where you can lean in and help those candidates in those states try to win and pick off some seats, try to win to move the needle in a direction that's going to allow the, 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 the reelected President Biden to get some things done. Because, you know, let's let's be honest. We know that if President Biden wins, gets reelected, but doesn't have the House and or the Senate then it's just going to be, you know, craziness for the two years until the midterm. So what I'm really trying to get people to understand is you have to lean into not only voting for the Biden-Harris ticket, but also helping out blue candidates that are in red areas Mm -hmm. to try to pick off, particularly in the House, some seats. And at the same time, Joan, um, you know, old school Chicago political thinking guy that I am and work on getting the state legislatures in other areas moving in the direction of being blue. And I'll give you an example of one of the things that I'm, that I'm talking about and that, that I've had uh, listeners on the family meeting um, get uh, uh, call me about and uh, call us about, and that is Michigan, the state of Michigan right now, we have a we have a Democratic governor, lieutenant governor in in, in uh, Whitmer and Gilchrist, but we also have kind of run the tables. We have the Secretary of State's office, we have the AG's office, and the State House and the State Senate have flipped, so that that the the the, the legislature and the supreme and the state Supreme Court is a more progressive court. So what's happening is Michigan is getting stuff done. Their mm-hmm. their their uh, environmental bills that the pre- that the president that the uh, governor has put forth, um, and some of the educational um, efforts as well as uh, uh, wages, because they are doing things that help everybody in the state, not just the people that voted for the governor that voted for other. Um, uh, progressive candidates. They're doing things to help everybody. So what I'm really passionate about right now is getting those that those that call themselves progressive liberal Democrats to not only vote in your state for the blue ticket or blue candidate on the ticket, but to also do the work to help candidates in other states. That is a really excellent suggestion. 
I was talking with um, one of my political uh, science advisors on the show recently, and and they said that it's uh, a five alarm fire. It is all hands on deck. 2024, we have to get out of our comfort zone. Everybody has to do something. Um, And, you know, I think a lot of people are nervous about, oh, you know, I I can't like what do you want me to do? I can't you know, I can't like travel to another state. I I don't feel comfortable being on the phone. You know what? There is um, in for most elections, you can send postcards and you're not sending postcards to people who are unappreciative. Yet generally you get lists of Democrats, yep. because part of what you're yep. trying to do is not change anybody's mind. You're just trying to remind somebody, oh, by the way, this election's coming up. It's really important. You've got to get out and you've got to get out and vote. You know, I was talking, um, I went to a presentation a month or so ago by somebody who's been involved in both politics and journalism, and they said that rather than trying to change the minds of Donald Trump voters, What we need to do is just get the like-minded voters, people who want democracy, they want progressive ideals, but sometimes they just don't vote. Yeah, Life gets in the way or they're not sure where their polling place is or this or that. She said, if you can get those people who are already in agreement with you to just get out and vote, that's when Democrats win elections. Oh, I mean, that's a. I'm going to add that to my arsenal because just a, this is what I, you know. Those of you who are listening and following us today, for this short time that Jones got me on the show, here's what I will tell you to do: if you are that person that we just described, all you have to do, literally, is go online. You can Google um, House races and Senate races in the country, and you, it'll pop up. And then pick pick four or five states. Or four or five candidates that are running in different different um, races, and call their office. All you got to do is call the office of a candidate running in a different state other than where you are, and ask them, "What can I do?" I live in Naperville, Illinois, and I know we're going to probably go blue. You know, for the most part, down our ticket. What can I do to help your candidate in your state races? They'll tell you what to do. They'll send you the stuff that, in terms of what Joan just talked about, in terms of doing postcards and mailers or whatever the case may be. If you can't feel like you can't make phone calls or whatever the case, they'll help. They'll help you help them. You just got to do a little bit of outreach, and it's not particularly complicated or hard, and it's not going to cost you really anything. It'll take a little bit of time, but this is how I look at it. If you spend a hundred dollars helping on another another election out of your pocket, or fifty dollars, whatever it might be. That's a small investment to make as a progressive liberal Democrat to make sure that we get to multiply that 50 or $100 into monies that we can use and that are sustaining in terms of our livelihoods by keeping democracy in order. Now, I don't mean to be way, way cerebral on this, but that's just a simple equation. If you spend $50 or $100 helping a candidate get elected and that candidate and multiply those candidates by many across the country, then we are really leaning in and using our power as progressives to get things done and sustain things. Yes, yes. Um, When you have callers to the family meeting, and uh, they're, they say that they're disappointed with Biden. They don't feel that 
um, the current administration is helping them. What what do you say to those folks? Those two things that I do, and when they call in, or whether I'm talking to someone socially or face to face, someone says that they don't, they're not, they're not feeling Bidenomics, or you know, to, to your question, I first ask them, what is it that you're disappointed in? Tell me specifically what it is that you're disappointed in, or that you're not happy with. I want to know what that is. Give me a laundry list, and I'm telling you, Joan, whether it's someone calling in or someone that I talk to face to face. Um, maybe one or two out of 10 can give me something specific, a specific item rather than just sort of the pablum, what, you know, broad brush. Well, you know, he's not Fox sort of stuff. And I don't care. Pardon? The, uh, what I, what I sometimes hear people say are, is just a regurgitation of Fox talking points and they don't even That's really it. understand any context for what they're, what they're saying. Yeah, that that's exactly what it is. So when that happens, I have a I have a little strategy that I put together a few months ago, and it goes like this. So when someone does that or says ask, says that, I ask, well, tell me specifically what those items are. And most of the time, they can't. You know, eighty percent, ninety percent of the time, they don't have a thing that's specific. Then I ask this question, and that is, so what are your what are your alternatives? Are you saying that because you're not you're not happy with Biden? administration and what they've done, that you're going to vote for someone else. And then I say, because if that's the case, and let's say that that votes for someone else is 45. I asked them this question, tell me specifically, what is it that 45 did for you during the four years that he was in office that you could specifically put your thumb on and say is benefiting you right now? And then I say, and then juxtapose that against what is it that the Biden administration has done specifically that has harmed you and made your life worse? Because what I'm not going to do, Joan, is allow someone to put any of us in a position to defend President Biden and his administration when I want them to tell me what's wrong with it specifically and what was better about the previous dude. And when they can't do that, which is about 80 or 90% of the time, then I say, well, let me help you with some things that president Biden has done. That's helped many of us. And then I list three, four or five things that I've got kind of in my hip pocket all the time to say, these are things that are, and, and one of them is just, just to be fun with people in the Chicago metropolitan area, I'll say, has it been a little bit more difficult to kind of navigate traffic the last year and a half? Oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, because Biden economics, as it relates to the Build Back Better, is causing you to have better roads. But for the time being, traffic's a little bit heavier. But guess what? Your roads are going to be a little bit better. Your bridges are going to be a little bit safer. Your railways are going to be a little bit safer. Isn't that a good thing? Yeah. And I'll say, so last summer, 2022, gas prices were higher than they are right now, weren't they? Yeah. So who did that magically happen or did some good policy and some good negotiation and some good conversation by the Biden administration help to get these prices more in line with us, with with where we need to be? Ten out of ten times people go, yeah, you're right. I guess they, they are a little bit. I said they're lower. You wanted them to be lower, right? Yes. So how much lower should they be before you take your foot off the neck of the president and say, okay, yeah, now they're low enough. And nobody can give me a specific amount, but they get, I get them head nodding, which is, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying, Richard. So I start by pulling apart 
what it is that they're saying and deconstructing what's so awful. Then I put it back together by saying, now here's some stuff to fill your cup. Now, what I want you to do, Mr. or Miss, or a person that's called in or face-to-face, is I want you to take this messaging to somebody that you know needs it because we have to keep this democracy in place. That is so Richard Chu to be so reasonable. And, you know, if there's, you know, if there's anybody who can turn somebody around, Richard, it is you. You have a remarkable talent and a, and a gift for communication. And we're going to hear more of Richard Chu's communication right after we come back from this break. If you missed any of today's show, you can listen on SoundCloud or iTunes. Just search WCPT 820. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk. 820 AM. WCPT Willow Springs. And online at WCPT820.com. Where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Richard Chu, who, with Eric Grant, hosts the family meeting here on WCPT every Sunday from 4 to 6. Richard, I'm sure you have seen this by now, the fact that the jury came back in the Ed Burke case and apparently found him guilty of 13 of the 14 counts that he was facing. Uh, the guy yeah. next, next week on the 29th, he is going to be 80. And just one of the counts he was convicted of has a potential a 20-year sentence attached to it. Though I would imagine um, that... Um, that he will try to appeal this, <laughs> maybe, you know, keep it keep it dragging out in the courts long enough for him to live whatever remaining time he has on this earth. I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah, I know it, it's very it's heartbreaking. I mean, this is one of those situations where Ed Burke did a lot. Uh, they did a lot of good for people. They did a lot of good for folks. But at the same time, they did a lot of stuff that just, you know, it just obviously 14 indictments is no joke. And, you know, he played a little bit too hard, too fast, too loose, and it caught up to him. Um, And that's unfortunate. Um, I had a chance of meeting him about 20, about 20 years ago. And, you know, he's he's the magnanimous. Everybody's everybody's his friend personality. And um, it's just really too bad that this has happened. But at the same time, I look at it and say, now what have the others who are following him or have worked with him over the years, what did they what have they learned? And what are they going to do to change course with some of the things that they may not have been particularly great, great in doing as a elected official? Um you know, I'm a big believer in redemption, apology, redemption, and change, change your course of, of, of action. I look at that in my own life and, and try very hard to make sure that, you know, I don't have to apologize too much for doing something stupid. Um, but in the case like this with, with Ed Burke, um, he, you know, he was, what's the phrase? Uh, absolute power is, is, um, is whatever the phrase is. 
Yes. So that's what this would be a good example of. I was talking about this when the verdict first came in, and I think that we need to vote in for all different kinds of offices across the state of Illinois, term limits. Because look at Mike Mm -hmm. Madigan, look at Ed Burke. How did they get into trouble? Because I don't think they started off uh, corrupt, but, but over the years they get more power and more power and and know how to begin to learn better how to work the system or so they think and where to push the lines and and it doesn't it doesn't end well how many elected officials have we sent to jail here in the state of Illinois i don't think it's a yeah. it's a cure all but i think term limits would prevent the kind of accumulation of power that starts to make people think that they are untouchable it's the, it's the accumulation, Joan. It's also the consolidation of. And that's where term limits would have their place because you could only accumulate so much and you couldn't consolidate as readily because the people that you would consolidate with have left the, the elected official um, you know, uh, offices that they were elected to. The other thing I would ride along uh, on with you on your coattails on this is, and this is a big deal. This is where, you know, um, it's. I think it's hard for people to, to, to really – go here but you know i'm i'm just being richard chu we've got a we we've got <laughs> we've got a really big problem when it comes to the monies listen you know the elected officials don't manufacture or make anything you know they don't they, so where does where is the where do the resources come from to be able to be in a position to corrupt someone cuz it's always about money it's always about money or access to a scenario that gives a person power which then will give them money so it's always about money, no matter how you slice it. So what are, where, where is the money coming from? Well, it's coming from businesses. It's coming from businesses who need a favor or they need a, a look the other way or they need a, you know, whatever you want to call it, a greasing of the wheels, proverbially, so that they can get something done. So we've got to be willing to lean in. We as a society have got to be willing to lean into businesses and say, look, you all can't keep thinking you're going to give up you're going to give give money, private money or public money, to politicians so that you get what you want and be able to go forward with your company. Your company is going to pay a penalty. So what I'd like to see is the people, the businesses, who were the ones that wrote the checks, gave the money, did the things that allowed Burke to be in that situation to consolidate power and Madigan, and, and across the board, across the country, red and blue states. Be able to say to those businesses, hey, wait a minute, you're the one that benefited from what he or she did. We're going to bring you in, too. Hmm. And I bet you a dollar, no pun intended, that when we cut, when we get the guts to go to businesses and say, you guys have to step to the line as well, that will be as that will be equally impactful because, yes, granted, the politicians that are doing the dirty work and have for years have gotten money from businesses. Well, I mean, I, I just watched, um, Ann and I just watched, um, doggone it, I'm drawing a blank on the, on the, it was a movie about, um, uh, Watergate. And I'm, I just can't, I'm just trying to blank on um, the name of Julia Roberts. Men? No, no, it, but it, it was, it was with Julia Roberts and, um, Sean Penn. Hmm. And it, uh, oh gosh, what was, um, it'll come to me in a second, Joan. In any event, at the end of the day, 
the reason the the the, the, the tool that was used to have the money so that the attorney general at the time was able to fund the creep program what came from private businesses. And so the private businesses are the ones that are equally culpable in to a lot of this corruption that we see. Well, you know, I think the, in the, the case of Ed Burke, wasn't it, wasn't it one of the businesses? Wasn't it the people at Burger King who felt that they were being uh, inappropriately pressured that went to the to the either the FBI or or the D, or the feds? I I thought they were the ones that started, you know, the 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 ball rolling, if you will, on on Ed Burke. I could be wrong. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm trying to remember, and God help me. You know. From, from my from my recollection, I, I believe you're right. Um, so I'm not saying it's that that the poli- that the elected officials are not doing corrupt things. I, I don't want anybody to mistake what I'm saying there in answering Jones' question. I'm saying that in in many cases, it's more than one entity. It's more than just the the elected official. It's also the businesses that are writing the checks and, and providing the money to get those officials to vote a certain way or to not vote a certain way or to lean in on certain businesses so that the other businesses get a break. It's, 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 a, it's a scenario where we've got to look at all of those interested parties or benefiting, benef- benefiting parties and hold them all accountable. And then I think we would see the change that people so so often are, are craving when it comes to this corruption. Long-winded answer, but it's one that I thought, I thought about on a number of occasions. Is how do we fix that? Mm-hmm. You got to fix both sides of it. So, well, because you know, whatever we have done so far doesn't seem to be working to the extent that we would like it to. You know, was, we've got to figure we've got to figure something else out here, or maybe several somethings out here. Um, going forward yeah. to, so that we don't keep doing this and we don't, you know, it, it, it yeah, it, we were a laughing stock. I mean, you know, I mean, how many late night talk show hosts make fun of our state because, you know, how many of our governors, for God's sake, have gone to jail, let alone alder people or um, state reps or state senators? I mean, I know it happens yeah. elsewhere. It just seems to happen here with alarming regularity. <laughs> Well, we are a big state. We're a big city that represents, you know, we're, we're the nexus for so much that goes on, not only just in, in Illinois, Illinois, but the Midwest and the country for that matter. So we are, I mean, by virtue of our size, we are a corruptible, you know, entity just by virtue of how big we are. And I think we sometimes forget, you know, Chicago gets viewed as, you know, like the second child or second city, but we're a big old city. We're a big old city with a lot of history and lots of global movers and shakers are right here in Chicago. So, yeah, I mean, I can, but I can tell you, I can go to other places in the country and they got their drama and their issues too. But because we're Chicago, we are one of the big movers and shakers globally. So I'm not trying to excuse it or kick the can down the road, but yeah, we, we, we are, (laughs) we got some work to do, but other states have some work to do as well. Well, talking about our high profile, when uh, Richard Chu and I come back from a break, I want to talk about the migrant crisis and how now that we have a law 
uh, in the city of Chicago and in some suburban cities that allows them to impound buses that show up with migrants. Now, Greg Abbott has uh, chartered a private plane to bring them in. It's a, a, a situation that is going to continue to get worse. Well, Richard and I are going to talk about that when we come right back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Chicago's Progressive Talk. WCPT820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. The city of Chicago has seen buses of migrants arriving from Texas sent there by Governor Greg Abbott. The Chicago City Council passed a new ordinance that actually has been taken up by some of the neighboring suburbs as well. That says when these buses come, if there isn't sufficient warning, if they don't have permits, if they don't drop these people where they're supposed to be and put them in the hands of the people who are there to help them, that the buses will be impounded and the bus companies will face at the very least fines. Okay, sounds like um, something of an answer to these uh, these poor displacements of people who don't even know what's going on. And uh, so Greg Abbott decided to, I guess, to thumb his nose at the city of Chicago and the surrounding suburbs by uh, chartering a plane and flying in 150 migrants uh, just this week. Um, An action that has got city officials accusing the Texas governor of human trafficking. And frankly, Richard, that's kind of how I see it, too. I mean, there are, you know, Greg Abbott doesn't like it, and he's made this a real political uh, issue for him. But there are play, there are judges, there are lawyers, there are procedures, there are facilities federally funded in Texas to uh, process these people. But he's circumventing all of that so he can make a political statement and basically thumb his nose at Joe Biden. And I it, I think it is human trafficking. What are your thoughts on yeah, this whole situation? Uh, great lead in, Joan. And, and, and yes, to all the above of what you said. And so this is this is not an accident. This is a calculated move by some very I can't use the word on on your show because we'd lose our FCC license. <laughs> um, so so listeners and, 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 and I'll use your imagination. Um, but, yeah, Greg Abbott is um, uh, he's doing something that is awful and horrible and inhumane and all the rest. And, yes, could be viewed tantamount to human trafficking. Uh, but this is a plan uh, by the Republican Party. This is a plan by the Republican uh, hierarchy um, to create a opportunity to make to, to, to provide as much distraction and awfulness as one could ask for for President Biden. And let's not forget, that's it, you think what's happened thus far has is, is happened and it's terrible. But what's also going to happen, in my observation, is I think that by the time we get around to the DNC next year, that we're going to see another large, for lack of better words, transportation of people into Chicago. And I hope that the governor, I hope that 
uh, President Preckwinkle and I hope that uh, Mayor Johnson are prepared for how that's what, what they're going to do, the Republicans in Texas and Florida, um, to create this visual of pandemonium and craziness and, and raucousness in Chicago to, to create a visual similar to, to, to 1968. And I know that a lot of people might think that's hyperbole, but I don't, I don't think for a minute that the Republicans are, 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 uh, are going to try to do anything to help the Democratic uh, uh, National Convention. And I think they'll do everything in their power to hurt it. And that may be one of the tools that they'll use next uh, late spring, you know, certainly into the summer. Now, coming, so that, that's something that I'm looking at long range, and I hope that the DNC and I hope that the other leaders of the party are paying attention to that. Now, as it relates to uh, Abbott and 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 um, and uh, having a plane bringing folks in, yeah, at this point, this is where the federal government needs to step in and start to look at what is it that the federal government can do. And I know that sometimes President Biden likes to not use the power of the presidency to go after anyone, but in cases like this, they need to make sure. That all the uh, that there there's been no corruption in this process because um, that is part of where the FAA has some leverage. A lot of people may not understand that, but the FAA has some leverage here. Federal agency can, for lack of better words, put the brakes on uh, what the governor of Texas is doing if he starts to use planes to bring people into the state of Illinois. Now, that so, I hadn't thought about, that, Richard. What? Uh, how would that work? You clearly have uh, spent some time learning about this. Ex- explain it to me a, a little bit. Well, to, to what I know, that if they are to go, and again, this is in the, in, inside of the conversation about uh, uh, trafficking uh, people. If the governor of Texas is using, um, is flying people in, we're, we got an interstate uh, commerce issue because when a plane lands, takes off and lands in one uh, jurisdiction and another, the FAA has jurisdiction over that, that plane. They can turn that plane around before it even lands. Hmm. If there's any view uh, or if, if there's any suspicion that the um, those who have boarded the plane or those who are in control of the flight. In this case, that would include Governor Abbott because if he's if he or his government, his administration is chartering a plane to to fly people who are not who have not become legal residents, not residents, but have not become um, uh, legal citizens of the United States, that is where trafficking comes into play. And that's where the FAA not only has purview, they have a responsibility. Um, and so that's where I feel that the federal government, i.e. The, the administration using the FAA, should consider stepping in. And God forbid that that were to happen and a plane were to go down and those folks were to be injured or killed. That would be on the, that would not be on President Biden. That would not be on Governor Pritzker, uh, President uh, Preckwinkle, or uh, Mayor Johnson. That would be on the entity that that um, that uh, chartered the plane. So I'm just I'm going. I, I, mm-hmm. I you know, Joan. I, I 
I sometimes make my family and friends crazy because my brain does that. Um, <laughs> because I see some, I, I see something, I hear something, I go, let me look in to see what, what the, what's the real issue here. Um, and that's kind of how I see it. And, and it's just disgusting that they're doing this. It's disgusting. Greg Abbott is a, um, he is the, he is the thing that we all want to say about certain people, but we have to be careful when we say it. And <laughs> I just, um, you know, I, I've, I've said this before, Joan, and I, I know we're coming to the top of the hour when people like this do something like this, um, it is to, to the benefit of whom. Is it, it's not benefiting, you know, folks in Illinois. It's not benefiting folks in Texas. It's not benefiting um, the people who would be on those buses and planes. It's only done as a political calcula- calculated move to hurt people. There's no help in this process. So the little bit of faith that I have, and and meaning meaning, you know, going to church on Sunday, so to speak. When I see this, I think these people do these kinds of things. And then show up in church on Sunday for what reason? I mean, you you know, you're just yeah. you're you're doing something harmful to humanity. What in the heck are you thinking? So, long way home, but Greg Abbott is definitely um, a person that is not helping citizens of the country or those who are who are asylum seekers or immigrant uh, migrants. He's harming them. There's no question about it. Absolutely. And I think it from what I understand, he clearly feels that this is something popular with the people of Texas, that he's making great, uh, you know, political strides with the voters of Texas, that they really yeah, send them away or just show them, send them those Democratic cities. That's that's what we want. So clearly he has a personal motivation to continue this, despite the fact that the rest of the world finds this finds this really horrifying and really inhumane. But um, I think that you're right. I think it is going to take uh, whether it's intervention by the FAA to stop these planes or maybe uh, the city of Chicago can pass a quick ordinance to impound the planes. I can't imagine too many charter services um, have extra planes lying around where they can ground part of their fleet in Chicago while this is uh, worked out in the courts. Um, yeah. and, you know, I, I, I honestly also think and I don't know if Kwame Raul would be the person to do this. I really do think that that human trafficking statutes, maybe that's that would be maybe that would give Greg Abbott the kind of attention that he really wants with that. Maybe he's better off not being charged with human trafficking. You know, it's like it's like every time Donald Trump gets indicted, you know, he fundraises another two million dollars. So I don't know. You know, maybe we deprive Greg Abbott of the attention and simply go after the companies he's using. But something's got to change. Yeah, I think that the attorney general in the state of Illinois would be well suited to say, you know what? With the with the FAA the the FAA in Illinois and the federal uh, uh, oversight to say, listen, we have suspicions of X. Those planes have to be turned around. They can't even land. That would be the first step. If I were AG, I would be like, no, they can't even land. They have to be turned back. Those planes cannot touch the ground in anywhere in the state of Illinois. They have to go back to Texas. 
And that, that's to me, would be the most impactful, immediate thing to do. Turn them around. Nope, can't come in. The difference with buses is they can, they can come in in the, in the, the cloak, you know, the cover of night. Um, but the impounding once they get here and, and putting the pressure on those companies, absolutely, I agree with that, whether it be the bus companies or the, 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 the chartered uh, uh, flight services. Um, those make them go back. And, and I, I'm, I'm repeating myself because that's how powerful that statement would be. Yeah. No, nope, you got to go back. Can't yeah. even land. And, and that, that would come from that would come from on high at, from the FAA. But that's kind of how we have to play the game. Well, I agree with you. And we better figure something out because Greg Abbott is going to keep doing this and he's going to he's going to ramp up his game as we get closer and closer to hosting the Democratic National Convention, um, which uh, WCPT is going to be a part of. But, um, you know, we really want that to be a positive thing and we don't want to be distracted by the. A number of migrants showing up in the in the city of Chicago at the same time. So we need to figure it out and we need to figure it out now. And I charge you and Eric to figure it out this Sunday. I want solutions. I want answers. <laughs> well, we will do our best and I will I'll make a point of leaning into that, whether it be on Sundays or on any day of the week with you. But it's always a pleasure, Joan, to be with you on your show. Why? Thank you, Richard. Uh, It is always a pleasure to talk to you, and I really thank you for the times when you have filled in for me. Uh, It's always nice for our listeners to hear you and to hear more of you. Uh, Go ahead. Turn it up, Lady B. It definitely, uh, it, it definitely has a certain amount of pomp and circumstance to it. I can, I, I can love that. <laughs> yes, don't forget it's the holiday season, folks, and we have a lot of work to do in 2024. So enjoy your family, rest up, and get ready. Uh, get ready to fight the good fight. And listen to Eric Grant and Richard Chu every Sunday, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. here on WCBT. Thanks again, Richard. Thanks, Joan. Merry Christmas. To you, too. We're going to take a break for news, and we're going to be back with more right after this. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. It'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks radio program, Mega Worldwide. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. Our good friend William Campbell is based in Ireland and does the Irish podcast, Here's How, where he talks about all things social and political and cultural that are going on in Ireland. We like to call him our European correspondent. And who better to talk about what has happened in 2023 and what is going to be happening in 2024 in the lands outside of the United States other than William. William, thank you for being here. Thank you, Joan. Good to talk to you. Good afternoon. 
Always. You know, you're a big hit with my listeners. People really give Uh-oh. me a lot of great feedback when you've been on. You should, you should have that guy on more often. He's good. <laughs> so there, there you have it. You're mm-hmm. in demand here in the United States. And I hope some of the folks who are listening to us subscribe to your Here's How podcast because it is a freewheeling, freewheeling, wide ranging and uh, always fun discussions that you have with people on it. The, the check, the check is in the post, John. <laughs> that is your advertisement for William Campbell's podcast. <laughs> um, so I asked you to touch mm-hmm. on the best and the worst of 2023. Now I know we could talk about this for about three hours. Yep. So, uh, but let's 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 see what what you've got here. Where would you like to start? Well, there's a few themes, and I know your people uh, are mostly interested in Britain, and that's what I've kind of lined up on this. And what's really striking, it feels to me like the place is going to hell in a handcart. And one of the things, and perhaps older listeners there might remember 1979, Margaret Thatcher coming to power, being like the first of the real neoliberals that, that, that came to power uh, in, the, in, the, in the Western world in 1979, followed a few months later by, uh, by Ronald Reagan. And one poster got her elected in, in the days when posters were really uh, uh, very important in, in electoral terms. And the poster was just on a, a white background, a long queue of people representing an unemployment line. And the, and the, the, the slogan was, Labour isn't working, because there had been so many strikes and so, many, uh, so much industrial dispute and so much economic trouble in the previous uh, during the previous Labour government, it seems like now they're 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 trying to put that to shame. The real theme, especially in industry and commerce in Britain this year, has been strikes, and the I think the trigger for that is very very high inflation, easily the highest inflation in the OECD area. A lot of that is contributed to by Brexit, and there's a lot of complex and, and very difficult reasons behind it. But when you at the end of the you know when you have too much month at the end of your salary, hmm. um, you you really feel that, and um, like literally from the first day, I think on the third of January. 40,000 railway workers went on strike in Britain. That was, uh, that, that was a uh, strike. Obviously, 40,000 people is a huge number of people to go on strike, but that has an enormous impact because of the number of people who, who use trains every day to get to work. So it was enormously disruptive. And it, obviously, when people are looking at 10% inflation, or, or I think 11 12% it hit during some months, and two and three percent pay increases that's a you know that's a real and very sizable cut to your actual spending power and um rishi sunak the prime minister's his his response to this was to bring in what they call the strikes minimum service levels bill uh, just a couple of days later after that that train strike which basically is not making it illegal to strike but saying in very many cases, strikers can be ordered to work by a minister and can be essentially uh, receive criminal convictions if they refuse to do so. Uh, and uh, it doesn't feel like he has been in much of a, of a mood for negotiation. And 
to be fair, he doesn't have an awful lot of negotiating room, but it would seem very much that another theme of the year is that uh, Rishi Sunak's government is somewhere between 15 and 30 points behind in the polls. And one thing that's really crucial for the Conservatives coming into the election, which is in, almost certainly going to be in 2024, the crucial thing on that is that not only are they behind in the polls, you know those those like subsidiary questions, who do you trust on this issue? Who do you trust more on that issue? On pretty much every single issue, the Conservatives are trusted less, and they always really were, with one exception. They were typically trusted more on the economy, and if they could spin the discussion to the economy, that would be to their advantage. But now the Conservatives are trusted less, and by a wide margin on the economy. So if they turn the the conversation, the electoral campaign to the economy, that means they lose worse and they have only one card left, which is essentially the Kosher Wars. And that is the that that is the driver behind things like this um, strike minimum service bill and various other things we might get a chance to talk about throughout the year. It's quite depressing, but that's that 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 seems to be the way that they go. The only thing you can say that's maybe not so depressing about it is that it doesn't seem to be working, but they seem to seem to think it's doing them so good, some good because they're just keeping on trying on, on all of these kosher war issues, one of which very much in Britain is strikes. And uh, there have been, just throughout the year, doctors, nurses, uh, every type of uh, you know major public sector union uh, has 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 gone on strike, including civil servants, hundreds of thousands of civil servants at a time going on strike, university lecturers, and so forth. Throw me another question, Joan. <laughs> um, that sounds like a powder keg, William. I mean, that's yeah. that's the sort of situation where you start seeing not just strikes but riots. Um. That that may be true. I, I think that it has not come to that in most cases. Um, but and I was looking at the figures recently, and if you look at uh, Britain, where it is in terms of GDP per head, you know how much money on average each person makes. It doesn't look that good, but it doesn't look that bad. Hmm. And. If you were to put it on, you know, I think uh, every time you hear about uh, some statistic, every state in the U.S. can say that they're, you know, number 10 or number 5 or number 1 on the list of 50 states for whatever metric you're talking about. If you look at the economy, Britain, if it were a U.S. state, and this is really shocking, Britain would probably be number 49. Uh, So it would be ahead of Mississippi, but that's just about it. And that's pretty bad. Yeah. But it's actually much worse than that because Britain is now essentially it's essentially Connecticut <laughs> welded w- welded uh to Venezuela. Uh and it is uh, London I I'm making the analogy of Connecticut is very very wealthy and is you know essentially a global city that has a huge financial services sector and various other uh, service sectors that that uh, keep it quite rich to put to put it bluntly the rest of britain almost all of the rest of britain is miles behind to the point that if you were to have a country that was britain x london 
it will be one of the poorest and possibly the poorest country in the EU, uh, including the you know, very, uh, very poor Eastern European countries. And there's just an enormous wealth gap there. And I mean, so far, that has not expressed itself as riots in the streets, but it has expressed itself, for example, in the Brexit vote and people who were, you know, I think it would be fair to say low information voters who just wanted to reject everything because they felt that they, they had been ignored by society uh, came out and vote, were perhaps quite cleverly manipulated into voting for Brexit. That has made them a lot poorer. Uh, but that, you know, that, that's not necessarily something they could have uh, predicted, particularly uh, if they were, you know, people who, who were not particularly keeping up with the news in any case and, and doing that, you know, making that vote more out of a gut feeling than a logical analysis. Um, but it, it is very difficult to see where it is. I think the only thing that is maybe very different in Britain to uh, uh, what you have in the US is that next year, both Britain and the US will have an election. Um, the outcome of that is very, very uncertain in, in the US, but I think it is very, very certain in uh, Britain. There is just no way in hell that, uh, uh, that the Conservatives can win. They will do as much damage as they can going down, hmm. but, but the, 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 you know, they're typically 20 points behind in the polls. I'm, I'm, I'm just Googling here to go know, to my... Our elections go ahead. are mandated to be a certain, a certain day, um, but mm -hmm. they seem to be... Elections seem to be more fluid in Britain. You say you're pretty sure there'll be an election next year. Yeah. Why would, why, what will have to happen to bring that about? Um, it is phenomenally arcane and uh, stupid, uh, basically. Um, in theory, Britain has no democracy, no parliament, no nothing. The parliament exists only to advise His Majesty the King on what laws he should sign. Now, in reality, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, um, the, the power runs the other way. But uh, there ha was an attempt about uh, um, about ten years ago to make this slightly more regularized, but it has gone back to the crazy situation that it always had previously been, which is basically at any time the prime minister can advise the king to dissolve parliament, and there then will be an election within about a month uh, and what unlike your system, which I think is far better, where, where you have a, a a you have fixed terms, essentially the government of the day can and does manipulate the election date to to their own advantage, and we saw that with Theresa May when I think in in uh, twenty nineteen she thought she was a mile ahead in the polls, and even though uh, her party had only been elected about uh, two years previously, um, they. She said, well, let's go for an election. She called an election and she lost a huge amount of seats and, and, and ended up with a minority government reliant on, on these um, crackpot uh, uh, fundamentalists from Northern Ireland, the DUP. Uh, but looking at the, at the opinion polling now, um, about uh, 18, 20 percent ahead, uh, the Labour Party. And that doesn't even tell 
the story as bad as it is because, and I interviewed a guy called uh, Ben Habibi, who is the um, deputy leader of what's called the Reform Party, which grew out of Nigel Farage's, uh, Nigel Farage's Brexit party. Um, they're polling at about 8, 9, 10%. And that's really likely to be a disaster for the Conservatives because those people would be typically Conservative mm-hmm. voters who will peel off. And the the Reform Party is absolutely clear in their intention to target marginal Conservative seats. In other words, to be wreckers for Conservative candidates and to, to, to take away votes from them for the – for essentially to, to – push them further behind. And uh, this uh, first-past-the-post system, which I know is used in the US as well, is crazy enough when you only have two parties, but when you have three, four, five parties uh, <laughs> contesting an election, um, one uh, I know that one MP uh, actually in, in uh, Northern Ireland, in Belfast, was elected even though more than 75% of the voters in her constituency, in her district, voted against her. Wow. Um, not yes, not because she was the most popular; she was the least unpopular. Oh my um, god! Yeah, I've I've seen elections like that. William, we need to take a real quick break. I'm talking to William Campbell. Mm. He uh, does the Irish podcast. Here's how about all things uh, cultural and news events, politics. We'll continue our discussion right after this. Get social with WCPT 820 and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WCPT 820. Hello, everyone. Listen to my show, The Matt McNeil Show, weeknights in primetime at 9 p.m. on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. One hour every evening where we talk about all sorts of things, lots of politics, plus other topics too, books, sports, parenting, the arts, religion, music, food. If it matters to you, we talk about it. And you can follow me 24-7 on Facebook, Blue Sky, Twitter, Threads, and Mastodon. For one hour each night, come see the train chimp, The Matt McNeil Show with the aggressive progressive Matt McNeil, 9 p.m. weeknights right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Hey, Google, play WCPT. Streaming Chicago's Progressive Talk from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am happy to be joined by William Campbell. He is based in Ireland and does the podcast Here's How, where he talks about Irish culture and events and politics. And we are talking about uh, the United Kingdom and Europe and the greatest hits of 2023. And uh, William... We haven't even mm-hmm. mentioned that you got yourself a bright and shiny new king. Um, not my king, but yes, there is <laughs> there there is a king. Um, I, I will restrain my views on that. Um, uh, the pomp and ceremony um, seems to have been written by something out of out of a, a bad pastiche of of a I don't know a a. a, a um, George Lucas uh, pastiche of a a you know a planet somewhere with incredibly arcane rituals. Um, the yes, that happened. Um, <laughs> the amount of nonsense talked about this is is uh, uh, a beggar's belief. Um, uh, King Charles, as he now must be called, was inside. 
um, the the uh, the um, cathedral, which escapes the name of which escapes my name. By I know the architect Christopher Wren was the person who built it, and the name of it will come to me in a moment. Um, and inside this, uh, there was every uh, individual person invited to attend and many of those not invited to attend provoked their own news stories about how apparently newsworthy it was that each of them were invited or not invited to attend and uh, although I think you could see um, some of the um, uh, uh, some of the personal prejudices of the person involved coming through where um, Sarah Ferguson his brother's ex-wife who is a very prominent uh, uh, shall we say a prominent person and leave it like that was not <laughs> invited very pointedly he um uh, Meghan Markle who is the duchess of somewhere now uh, also uh, ended up um not uh, I think it was done delicately. She wasn't not invited. She just made a statement in advance saying that she wouldn't be available to come, uh, um, I guess, in order to avoid the embarrassment. Um, but what's really unbelievable is what's called the honours lists. And th- I think for, for people in the US, this would just beg a belief that this is still true. So, There is the Parliament with MPs, which I'm sure all of your listeners are aware of in Britain. There is a second House of Parliament on which the US Senate was very loosely based, or the US Senate was made an alternative to, which is the House of Lords. And the way you get into the House of Lords is by having a father who was in the House of Lords, principally, Mm. uh, and uh, going back a thousand years or so, uh, although that has been reformed somewhat. um, So now they have the uh, far more uh, democratic and uh, uh, popular uh, structure whereby most of the current members get to be members of the House of Lords basically by bribing the Prime Minister of the day or doing them some favour. And... The this is not a, a, a small thing. By being member of the House of Lords, you get what is tactfully not called a salary, but you get an allowance of about £120,000, you get about $140,000 a year. But the fact that it's not a salary and is an allowance means, of course, that it's tax-free, so that's pretty handy. Oh. Um, but uh, And various flunkies uh, are given... A, these these gongs by Prince Charles. But what was really startling is that the Prime Ministers of the UK, by tradition, get to make what is called a re- resignation honours list. In other words, they can say all of the people that they liked, they can put into the House of Lords and give them this... Uh, very significant amount of power and not a small amount of money for the rest of their lives. They never have to face election. There is the mandate never expires. It's just having been uh, having been been friends with the right person or donated in quotes to the right person. And there has been a whole swathe of scandals around this, but. It's difficult to know whether one of them was a very minor scandal or a very major one, because uh, in um, Boris Johnson's resignation honours list, which was only published um, 
this year, earlier this year, various of his obviously loyal um, uh, flunkies who were, had, had far more loyalty than talent, I think, were, were uh, made members of the House of Lords. But this is typically something that's, required, that's, that's reserved for people who are towards the end of their career and it's like, you know, you don't really have any other job now, so why not have this uh, very exclusive London club where you can wander in and uh, have a glass of port and have a snooze uh, and then wander back to, your, to, to, to wherever you are, all at taxpayers' expense. But one person he appointed is possibly the youngest – I don't know if it's the youngest person ever, but it's certainly the youngest person in many, many years appointed like this by Boris Johnson in his resignation honours list, which is particularly undemocratic because by the time anybody finds out about it, he's out of office. Oh. And this young woman's name was um, Charlotte Owen. And Charlotte Owen – uh, people really had to go looking up when she her, her name came on this list and she wasn't on Wikipedia and she wasn't uh, any listed anywhere particularly significant. And she then, uh, people realised that she was a fairly junior researcher for Boris Johnson, um, sort of a, a political uh, uh, staff while she was in her mid-twenties. And why should she be made a life peer with this enormous salary and enormous amount of power for the rest of what I assume will be quite a long life if she's getting this in her 20s? It isn't entirely clear. Uh, Until some people started pointing out a few things that are fairly strange. One is that Charlotte Owen bears a fairly striking, I wouldn't say resemblance to Boris Johnson, but uh, it's it's certainly... um, you know, there's a look there. There's the blonde hair and there's the kind of like chubby cheeked type of face. Um, and uh, also, she appears to have been born at almost exactly the time that Boris Johnson divorced his first wife. And she also has called Charlotte, which is Boris Johnson's mother's name. And mm-hmm. uh, she bears the surname Owen, uh, which is um, uh, Boris Johnson's first wife's maiden name. Oh, my, 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 my. Um, And Boris Johnson has been questioned on, on live radio, and the clip is out there, uh, where a presenter asks him a fairly simple question, how many children do you have? And he immediately clams up and starts his sort of uh, stammering, yammering, uh, dissembling, <coughs> and refuses to answer. Um, so... Uh, perhaps we got an answer there. Oh, but uh, to call that nepotism, I think, oh, is... is my now, goodness. Now, Yes, uh, it's it's quite remarkable. Now, now I should say that Charles Owen is listed, has not commented on this, but does seem to be listed as having parents who are not Boris Johnson and anybody else. Um, and uh, nobody has proven that this is the case. Um, but whether it is true or not, in either case, it's absolutely extraordinary. And uh, um, wow. uh, if that is not the explanation, then some other explanation needs to be supplied and has not yet been. Um, um, we better take a break on, on sure. that bombshell. Because I read about that and I thought, it, it, you know, that that's so weird. Uh, but anyway, thank you for the insight. I'm talking to William mm. Campbell. He does the podcast. Here's how we're going to continue our talk after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
Irish podcaster William Campbell joins us from Ireland. We are looking at the um, most interesting, uh, sometimes weirdest events of 2023 uh, going forward. You also had a visit. Uh, President Biden was... Uh, was there in the spring, if I'm not correct, if I'm if I'm remembering oh, that oh, correctly. Yes. Oh, 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 yes. Y- y- you could hear the sour grapes popping because <laughs> President Biden, I don't know if you've seen the clip. It has been played to death in Ireland of, uh, I think it was during the election. Um, and and uh, he, he's being doorstep by various uh, reporters and somebody shouts up, uh, shouts out, uh, President Biden uh, or uh, Senator Biden, a uh, question from the BBC, and he just goes, BBC, I'm Irish. Um, and that's <laughs> enormously popular in Ireland, not the case in Britain. And when, um, very deliciously, when Joe Biden first uh, came to Europe, he went first to Ireland, uh, as in the Republic, the South. Um, and he then visited uh, what in Britain would be called the United Kingdom. In other words, he went north to Belfast and had uh, Rishi Sunak fly himself over from London to Belfast in order to get the meeting with uh, the President of the United States. And the amount of comment on this in the in the British press and the bitterness of it was just a joy to behold and and <laughs> um, and their their uh, uh, impotent fury that they shouldn't be treated as uh, first and primary representatives of the rest of the world uh, uh, was 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 really unbelievable um ha- having said that uh, Joe Biden I think is relatively popular he see I, I can See, the United States is not without problems, um, but he has, you know, been seems at least from this side of the Atlantic to have been a safe pair pair of hands. Um, I, I don't know if I'd get him to hold anything uh, very expensive and heavy, but he <laughs> he, he, he he does not uh, seem to be. Um, uh, uh, well, I think you know we want to be bored once in a while, and the news for the previous four years was just way too exciting. Yeah, um, and and uh, I think that is uh, that is that is um, appreciated. Tell me, what are we talking about next? <laughs> well, one of the things that um, uh, that you know, when you were sending me your list of um, things that mm-hmm. you found interesting, one thing that really surprised me. You list here wind power is reported as the main source of electricity generation in the UK for the first three months of the year overtaking gas. That's an amazing, that's an amazing statistic. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, there are very, very many days when all of the coal and gas and uh, oil and so all fossil fuel generation is switched off. Now, it's that's changes from day to day uh, and but as this develops there are more and more days when that is uh, wind either um, exceeds uh, fossil fuel output or in some cases just takes over completely uh, but 
um, that is now, and I think you're looking at the, the, that was for the first quarter. I think that probably was true for at least, uh, will turn out to be, have been true by the time we get to the end of the year for three quarters out of four, uh, that wind is ahead. And as for the year as a whole, for sure, uh, wind is ahead of all of these. Um, basically the highlands of Scotland are, are being, are being, uh, covered in, in windmills and they are being built in, in, on, um, sandbanks off the, off the coast as well. And, um, I was on, apropos of that, I was reading recently that um, for quite some time now, it has been the case that if you want to invest in energy, you will make a far better return if you build windmills than you will build than if you build, for example, a coal-fired plant. But what about the existing installed base, the, the existing infrastructure is attempting to just keep using that? And actually, the economies of that have flipped so that if you own a coal-burning power station generating electricity, the best way to make a profit in generating electricity would be to close it down and hmm. build windmills because the, the, the cost differential has become so remarkable. And uh, yeah, we see these uh, things on enormous trucks bringing the sales of these things around the country uh, relatively regularly. And that, that, I mean, that is a, 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 I guess, a good thing. It reduces energy dependency. Um, electricity, which at the start of 2022, uh, prices had gone through the roof with the in- invasion of UK- Ukraine. I was seeing today electricity prices are now lower than they were before the start of the the attack, uh, Putin's attack on Ukraine. Wow! Uh, uh, so, so, so that energy blockade didn't uh, didn't go very far. Uh, what's next from our list? Well, at, uh, toward the end of your list, you mentioned mm-hmm. something that I have not read anything about. That mm-hmm. um, the Irish government plans to initiate an interstate case against the United Kingdom under the European Convention on Human Rights, something to do with provisions of the Northern Ireland <clears throat> Legacy and Reconciliation Act of 2023, referring to the Troubles. Mm-hmm. I have read nothing about that in this country, so maybe it's been lost in the, in the far pages of the digital uh, newspapers that I read. What is going on there? Um, this is what is called in politics in Ireland and in Britain legacy issues but I mean essentially what happened was there was a conflict and depending on people's outlook they will say that was um, uh, uh, you know uh, uh, nationalist uh, resistance against occupation or say that this is uh, uh, terrorist violence and, and people have different views on that but the reality is that 25 years ago a you know a peace agreement was made and part of that agreement was that within nobody would serve more than two further years in prison no matter what they did including people who committed many murders um but what was not uh, what was left out of that uh, deliberately was that people could still be charged and convicted and it, it has happened on a number of occasions that people have been charged and convicted of murders sometimes murders that happened many decades previously convicted and then immediately released and um, that is annoys some people uh, um, the fact that they are immediately released there are people who take the view that um, the people who have been convicted of murder were participating in 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 
a military conflict and uh, should not be exposed, uh, you know, to, to serve prison sentences for that. But what has happened and the basis of the case that you mention is where, and, and several hundred uh, civilians who were unarguably not part of the conflict were killed by British soldiers during that conflict. Uh, and in some cases, you could perhaps argue that, uh, and their lawyer certainly did, that, that soldiers, although they may not have been in danger, might have had some reason to think so, and it would have had, you know, there'd be a lot of resonance with uh, police violence in the US with that. But in some cases, and one in particular, uh, there was an, a known individual uh, who murdered several young people in cold blood, literally just shot people in the street uh, mm. in Derry, uh, which would be a nationalist uh, city in the northwest of, uh, uh, the, of Ireland. Very, very poor, an incredibly poor place. Um, and uh, they, um, British soldiers were sent in, essentially in tanks driving through um, residential streets and um, in, in I mean, there was frequent street violence uh, but th um, this particular case is outrageous because people lobbying particularly in the Conservative Party in Britain not only are insisting that these soldiers and one in particular who's known as Soldier F not be imprisoned, but that they not even be prosecuted. And they have apparently successfully lobbied that the prosecution of this man be dropped, um, which leaves uh, obviously the families of, of the people he murdered um, uh, uh, in, 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 you know, in a very difficult and, and upsetting and tragic position. And I won't go into the details of it, but there are recordings of uh, this man and his commander um, essentially laughing about uh, oh. the people they've been killed, they've killed, and in in one the 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 particularly controversial one is where somebody very bravely uh, tried to rescue somebody who this man had shot and injured, and this uh, person then takes the opportunity to um, also murder the person who's trying to to, to rescue his friend, um, and and uh, as you can imagine. Uh, 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 people in Ireland are not very happy with that. Um, it is it, it is a very emotive um, issue also in Britain because they have uh, you know they keep their military in a very special and honourable place and, and uh, mm. it, it is very difficult. And those details would typically not have been reported in Britain. So the newspapers um, and really any outlets that report that do not include those details. Um, and and it is more presented as. Um, you know, somebody got killed in the crossfire. But in this particular case, there's actually an audio recording of the, the radio exchanges of, of these people laughing about, you know, specifically killing someone who's trying to re um, rescue someone else who had already been shot. And um, so, yeah. That, and this soldier has uh, gotten a pass, will not face any kind of yeah. prosecution? It would it would appear so. Yeah, there there was an investigation a short number of years after the event. I should say this was in the nineteen seventies. So he's now an elderly man, uh, and there was essentially political interference, which ended that investigation. Uh, and uh, following pressure from the Irish government, that uh, investigation was reopened 
in the teeth of pressure against that happening from from essentially military interests in in uh, in Britain, uh, but that was then dropped again under pressure, and I would imagine that the legal prospects of that being reopened are very slim. Huh. Um, we are talking to William Campbell. He hosts the Irish podcast. Here's how. Uh, we are going to take a break. Uh, those of you who really follow the world of music may have noted the death of a member of the Pogues, Shane McGowan. My partner, William, is a, a musician, and this was one of the things that um, really hit him hard. And um, I would imagine that for uh, people in your neck of the woods, it was even worse. Um, William Campbell and I are going to be right back right after this. Take Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive, with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Irish podcaster William Campbell. His podcast is called Here's How. William, before we get to Shane McGowan, there's one more thing I forgot mm-hmm. to ask you about. Uh, David Cameron. David Cameron, mm-hmm. the former uh, prime minister, now is yes. back as foreign secretary. How's that working out? And um, That's really bizarre. Now, there's a convention that's, that... Um, cabinet secretaries, ministers in Britain are supposed to be members of parliament um, and David Cameron resigned on the morning after he lost the Brexit referendum in 2016 um, opinions of that the wisdom of that move, that particular move vary, but he has been out of politics um, and uh, I think m- just making a lot of money doing consultancy for various, <laughs> uh, uh, for, for, for various firms and, and also I think writing very boring books about how um, uh, he was really right about everything. <laughs> um, and uh, Rishi Sunak, um, who, who I think it would be generous to say is a little bit short in terms of talent in his ministerial team, um, thought that the best thing to do to bring in as their, their foreign minister, the, the foreign secretary, as they call it, um, David Cameron. So in one fell move, he appointed David Cameron to become Lord Cameron and thereby a member of the House of Lords, uh, entirely unelected, and uh, 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 then also uh, made him uh, made him uh, Foreign Secretary, essentially this uh, Foreign Ministry position, and. Um, that's not completely insane, uh, but the the the, um, uh, the, the woman. It, it is notable. I think it's notable also in Ireland uh, and in Scotland. Ireland. Uh, Leo Varadkar is Taoiseach, is the, the Prime Minister, whose uh, father uh, uh, comes from India. In Scotland, uh, Yusuf Humza is the the First Minister in London. Uh, Sadiq Khan is the Mayor. Uh, Rishi Sunak is the Prime Minister. Uh, Priti Patel and a woman called Suella Braverman are also. Uh, very, um, very prominent Asian politicians or from Asian origin. A lot of those people actually come from uh, East Africa, and, and, and um, but from an Asian Africa uh, origin there. Um, but the problem with uh, the last two that I mentioned, uh, Suella Braverman and Priti Patel, is that they're absolutely insane, and. Oh. 
um, it, um, Suella Braveman had essentially been goading um, Rishi Sunak to sack her uh, because uh, she wants to represent the far right of the party when they inevitably lose the election. And she didn't want to resign, but she didn't want to be part of this losing government. So her behaviour just got more and more insane until he, he, he uh, sacked her and uh, then installed David Cameron. So, yeah, that's how that works. Um, uh, uh, so uh, I think that, that, that uh, doesn't exactly count as being kicked upstairs, but it's, it's as close as you get, really, and it's quite a nice job. And again, he gets this uh, enormous amount of money and uh, free yes. club nice uh, and very fine dining in the centre of London for the rest of your life. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it is, it, that is true, yes. I, I should note also, um, I think you're going to mention Shane McGowan and, and yeah. uh, your William. Uh, um, uh, also during the year, uh, very tragically, Sinead O'Connor died, and that was an enormous yes. event. Um, uh, um, my my uh, little girl... Um, we walked into a, a store uh, on the, the morning after and was asking who uh, was this person who was on the front uh, mm. cover of every single newspaper. There was uh, 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 only one story, um, uh, but that was uh, that was indeed a tragic case. And in fact, her son, who I think was about 17, had died also by suicide, tragically. Yeah. Um, uh, Sh- um, Sinead O'Connor actually previously. lived for a time in a small town um Right next to where I live, and mm-hmm. um, a lot. Of, it was it was kind of an under the radar, quiet residence. Um, but everybody who lived in the area found out about it because there was uh, one day they called the the police. Uh, she had gone out on a bike ride and hadn't come back, and the fear mm-hmm. was from the people she was living with that she might have harmed herself as it turned out that was not the case but um it uh it got a lot of attention a lot of attention here she clearly had a lot of struggles for a very long time she did yeah and it was it was so tragic as was the death of shane mcgowan for the audience out here who doesn't know shane mcgowan or the pogues uh talk about him and that group um, Shane McGowan is one of those people that I think you might almost get angry at, that he was just so phenomenally talented and just an absolutely unbelievable songwriter uh, and ruined his health, although he lived to a remarkable age, given the industrial quantities of drugs that he and alcohol that he took in. Um, he he um, uh, uh, had very severe... I don't know if you'd call it a problem. It didn't seem to be that much of a problem for him, but he had very, very severe addiction issues Mm. and um, uh, was, you know, grew out of the punk scene in London in the 1970s. That's where he kind of started as a musician and just with an enormous amount of talent, wove that through Irish uh, traditional and folk music and... um, if you think that you'd need a, a lot of creativity and, and a lot of talent to put together punk music and Irish traditional and Irish folk music, um, you'd be right. And he had the talent in spades. And um, it, uh, um, hopefully we can play out on one uh, uh, song, uh, his, his uh, Christmas song, which um, I, I'm reminded of Noddy Holder, the guy in the 1970s who wrote, uh, uh, so here it is, Merry Christmas. 
Um, and uh, I, I heard from Nadia Holder, who I believe is still alive, and Nadia Holder just straight deadpan looked into a camera giving an interview, and he said, to you, that's just another cheesy Christmas song, but to me, that's a pension plan. And um, <laughs> that laterally, laterally, that became the case with uh, this particular song, The uh, uh, the Fairy Tale of New York. Um, and... I, I'm pretty sure that song alone made uh, Shane McGowan and the Pogues more money than all of their other music put together. But that it, you know, it is by no means the limit of their of their of their creativity. And, and my, um, perhaps my partner Ray, that that, who mm-hmm. I said is a musician, thinks that Shane mm-hmm. McGowan was one of the best songwriters who's ever lived. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. He was, uh, um, and anybody who hasn't heard of them and it would be interested to, uh, I'd, uh, whether you're going to buy an actual piece of plastic or <laughs> download it, I'd point you to um, the album Rum, Sodomy and the Lash, which is um, uh, um, uh, humorous and uh, just brilliant in all sorts of different ways. Uh, well, William, uh, I thank you for mm-hmm. being here, and I thank you for um, sending over to me and Lady B uh, that uh, Shane McGowan song, Fairy Tale of New York. And mm-hmm. um, I look forward to conversations with you in 2024. Yeah, you too, Joan. Have a happy Christmas and a safe and prosperous New Year. You too. Have a great holiday. And thank you so much for all of the information and, uh, and uh, amusement that you bring to us here in the States when you join me on the radio. I really appreciate it. Um, talk, talk to you again soon. William Campbell's podcast is Here's How. Now we're going to share with you Shane McGowan and uh, his song Fairy Tale of New York. Have a great evening. Good night. It was Christmas Eve, babe In the drunk tank An old man said to me Won't see another one And then I sang a song The rare old mountain tear I turned my face away Dreamed about you God, I'm the lucky one Came in late since one I've got a feeling This year's for me and you So happy Christmas I love you, baby I can see a better time When all our dreams come true They got cars big as bars They got rivers of gold But the wind goes right through you It's no place for the old When you first took my hand On a cold Christmas Eve Pretty queen of New York City When, when the band finished playing They held up for more Sinatra was swinging All the drums they were singing We kissed on the corner Then danced through the night The boys of the NYPD
Christmas Day.